welcome to Across Acoustics, the official podcast of the Acoustical Society of America's Publications Office. On this podcast, we will highlight authors' research from our four publications, the Journal of the Acoustical Society of America, also known as JAZA, JAZA Express Letters, Proceedings of Meetings on Acoustics, also known as POMA and Acoustics Today. I'm your host, Melanie Walters, Publications Business Manager at ASA. Today, I will be speaking with the co-authors of Individual Differences in the Acoustic Properties of Human Skulls, published in the 2019 issue of the Journal of the Acoustical Society of America in its JAZA Express Letters special section. Please note that as of January 1st, 2021, JAZA Express Letters has relaunched as an independent gold open access journal. I would like to introduce our authors, Dr. Michael Hall, professor in the Department of Psychology at James Madison University, and Dr. Jeremy Gaston, Division Chief at DevCom Army Research Laboratory. Good afternoon, gentlemen. How are you doing today? Good afternoon. Nice seeing you. Nice seeing you. Thank you for joining us. Our pleasure. I want to start off with um, your backgrounds. Uh, Dr. Hall, I'd like to start with you. Could you give us a brief uh, synopsis of your background? Sure. So I did my graduate work at the State University of New York at Binghamton. The research laboratory that I was training in in the Department of Psychology there was operated by Richard Pastor, and it was a psychoacoustics laboratory that was looking at general auditory principles that could apply to both speech and music and environmental noises as well. And after I got my PhD there, I did postdoctorate work at the University of Washington, working in Department of Speech and Hearing Sciences there, and went from there to uh, professorship first at uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, before moving back to the East Coast to Virginia to James Madison University, and have been there ever since. The other things I could end up telling you that might be of interest would be that I'm a former president of PSYCHI, which is the International Honor Society in Psychology, and I'm currently serving as a co-editor of a journal that I helped start uh, called Auditory Perception and Cognition, which is looking to integrate information across all levels of auditory processing, and that's published by Taylor and Francis. Oh, wow. Very nice. Very interesting. And uh, Dr. Gaston, could you give us a little bit about your background as well? Sure. So uh, coincidentally, uh, I also trained uh, at Binghamton University where I got my PhD in cognitive psychology, also in uh, Dr. Pastor's lab there. And uh, it, so uh, me and my- Don't uh, mention my how many years program. after me that was, please. Uh, it was only like two, right? <laughs> just a few, just a few. <laughs> um, so- uh, yeah, my concentration there uh, was low-level auditory perception with a concentration on uh, low-level uh, speech perception. And uh, graduating out of uh, Binghamton, uh, I took a postdoc at the Army Research Laboratory, uh, where I was a postdoc for about two years, uh, where I was looking at uh, natural uh, auditory scene perception. And uh, then I became a uh, full-time research scientist at the Army Research Laboratory. And after a few years, uh, I became a branch chief and got the opportunity to actually supervise uh, a number of research programs. And currently, I'm uh, an acting division chief uh, at Army Research Laboratory uh, in uh, an area where we have a core competency in uh, looking at human interactions in complex systems. And I should say also, uh, coincidentally, um, uh, I've 
also kind of worked for the Army on the in my life is uh, out of high school, I joined the Army National Guard and I was a uh, combat engineer for 10 years, uh, all through uh, undergrad and uh, graduate school uh, before coming to uh, our research laboratory. Oh, very nice. Now let's take a look at your research. Your current research is targeted to individual uniqueness in acoustic properties of skulls and how they might affect hearing. How did this research come about? Well, the real kind of nod needs to end up going to the first author on this, uh, Mike Gordon, was actually first interested in the issue. He had actually presented some work at a meeting of acoustical society, I believe, that was interested in trying to look how the small amount of information that was being accessed through the skull instead of the normal chain of operations uh, might actually be impacting people's listening preferences to something like a piece of music. They tried measuring that, but at the time they had access to very little equipment. Even though they had access to uh, a bone conduction microphone, he and I spent some time talking over his poster at a meeting of APCAM, which is the Auditory Perception Cognition in Action meeting. I used to organize that meeting for several years. This is like a satellite meeting ahead of Psychonomic Society. And while he was describing this project to me, I said, well, you know, I see where you found struggles with getting the measurement. And part of it was due to most of the people at the time looking at like a single frequency at a time and measuring what the response characteristic would be to a single sinusoidal tone. And I said, well, if you want to know the frequency response as a result of bone conduction through the skull, why don't we use a broadband stimulus like noise? And then we'd have an idea of what the skull is actually contributing across all frequencies at once. So we started talking at that point. Then we ended up connecting with Jeremy. When Jeremy got to speak with Mike, uh, it became clear to Jeremy very quickly that, well, wait a minute, you know, I have access to audiologists. Uh, We have equipment that could do this. And so he came on board with the practical pieces of the puzzle. You want to pick it up from there, Jeremy? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, so coincidentally, um, you know, uh, we at Army Research Laboratory at the time had a uh, uh, sort of a a program in looking at uh, audio communications and also uh, noise hazard. So we did a lot of evaluations of uh, different types of communication devices and evaluation of different types of hearing protection devices. And so sort of as part of my second hat from uh, doing basic research in uh, auditory perceptual issues was also this uh, expertise in noise measurement. So uh, we had uh, quite a bit uh, of an expertise in uh, making uh, and recording uh, bone conduction signals in addition to uh, sort of standard uh, audiological uh, measurements of uh, human hearing. And we sort of use those for uh, doing characterizations of uh, sort of human uh, profiles in uh, uh, evaluations of these different types of audio communications and uh, hearing protection issues. Oh, very nice. Um, Now, I heard that you mentioned um, there were, uh, your research kind of targeted uh, individual differences in bone conduction. So in your research, instead of using cadaver skulls, you use in vivo or living samples. What was the benefit of this method? Well, to put it in simple terms, the skull is a filled object, right? And it's going to respond very differently if you treat it like just a chamber, an empty chamber, and work with cadaver skulls in that way versus if it has everything else being present. 
if you really want to capture what kind of information could get through to the middle and inner ear through bone conduction, then it makes sense to end up doing it in a living human. Okay, that makes sense. Now, you projected broadband noise through the skull and spectrally analyzed using a fast Fourier transform and in one-third octave bands. This is a lot to unpack, and I want our listeners, along with myself, to fully understand. Can you explain what a fast Fourier transform is and explain the significance of one-third octave bands? Absolutely. The idea of a Fourier transform, Fourier analysis is based on the idea that you could take a complex signal that's made up of many frequencies and you could break them down into terms that are simpler for us to describe and understand the nature of the sine wave. So each frequency is an individual sine wave having its own frequency, amplitude and phase information. A Fourier analysis can actually decompose that complex signal into those individual frequency components. A Fourier transform is a mathematical technique that'll actually try to isolate all of those within the complex signal at once. And that way we could end up having a graphical or numeric output giving access to how intense was the contribution from each frequency component. Where that's helpful for this project is then we could end up putting a broadband stimulus in there that covers the entire frequency range, and we could see then which frequencies come out as appearing to be amplified and which ones appear to be reduced or attenuated. And that'll tell us like what different things that the individual skull might be doing. Yeah, and then the second part of your question was uh, what is the significance of the third octave band? So if we think about uh, when we're trying to understand sort of the perceptual transformation of sound, right, is uh, what we want to take into account is how the uh, human auditory system uh, actually parses that information. So, you know, the auditory system in, in a very simplistic nutshell sort of uh, analyzes sound in these overlapping auditory filters. And one very uh, succinct engineering way to look at them is in terms of uh, third octave bands, which also map onto musical scale. And the significance of the third octave bands is that they are good rough approximations of what the size of uh, those auditory filters are as you actually move up through the frequency scale. So some of your listeners uh, may be familiar, if, if ones are a little bit more, more familiar uh, with you know, uh, the auditory system, is that you know one typical way of uh, looking at the auditory filters is in terms of what the critical bandwidth is, is what they call it. And that sort of defines uh, sort of the edges of a filter that uh, processes information as you move up through frequency. And now um, I just want to talk more about your experiment. In the experiment, you tested 30 participants, 18 women and 12 men. Could you explain your procedure for testing? Yep. <laughs> so bear with me here. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. So essentially, uh, we, we took two methods uh, for testing, right? So uh, one is that uh, we collected a set of uh, subjective measures. So this is more uh, typical uh, ideological measures. So we did a air conduction uh, threshold testing. Uh, and then we also did uh, complementary bone conduction threshold testing. So this is where you actually had a bone conductor, uh, bone conduction uh, transducer that was placed on the mastoid, and you're playing basically the tones through the system or, or through the head to, to measure those uh, subjective thresholds. 
Now, the reason you would actually do those at, typically in an audiological exam, do those two different types of uh, measurements is uh, it'll tell you if you have uh, a conductive hearing loss. So there's something wrong with uh, something with the middle ear about conduction through uh, the peripheral auditory system, uh, or if it's a uh, sensory neural uh, hearing loss, something related to uh, the inner ear. So what we did is we did these uh, typical uh, audiological measures as sort of a baseline subjective uh, performance. And then we had sort of our objective measures is where we had uh, placement of the bone conduction transducer on the back of the ear on the mastoid that was producing the broadband noise that then was uh, traveling through uh, the skull. And then we had uh, actually an experimental uh, bone conduction microphone that had been developed in uh, some of our work with some of our partners um, to collect basically the response as it traveled through the skull uh, from uh, position on the forehead. So Basically, uh, with these participants, uh, we made a number of different measurements uh, for the objective measurements uh, paired with those subjective measurements uh, that sort of provided the base uh, data set for our uh, follow-on analyses. Yeah, I just to add on to that and piggyback on what Jeremy said a little bit, which is that the nature of the noise stimulus as a white noise stimulus, this is something that is going to have the same amplitude on average across all frequencies. And so the question that we're essentially testing is like, if that you draw that as a graph, it's basically a flat spectrum, right? You know, the, the amplitude stay the same across the entire frequency range. But if you present that now through the skull, what you actually measure through the bone conduction microphone will come back as something different than that. The question is, how far is it deviating from that flat spectrum? Certain frequencies are going to be reduced and, or filtered out, and other frequencies might come out looking augmented. So that was kind of the goal there. In addition, we also took measurements on essentially the recording of that stuff without the skull, so that you can end up finding out what the actual measurements from the equipment involved was. And we could subtract that out at the end. So any information that was coming from just the limitations of the equipment to be able to record uh, could be accommodated for in our outcome. What we ultimately reported then was adjusting for that so it was really reflecting what was coming from the skulls. Oh, I see. Okay, that makes sense. It's understandable. And now um, after testing, uh, what were your findings um, was there anything that surprised you, um, things that you thought, okay, this is exactly what I thought I would find out? I was kind of in disbelief a little bit because, you know, if you take a measurement of decibels, we were kind of recording out of these third octave band measurements, for example, where we get an output in kind of a, a relative decibel reading from each of those third octave bands. And the changes within a third octave band from what we started with from the white noise we were submitting to what we actually got when it was conducted through the skull was dramatically different. And not only was it dramatically different, but it also changed drastically from one person to the next. And that was kind of the most shocking point. Uh, I started graphing out the range of differences that we were seeing in our individual listeners and people who go to the paper will end up seeing this depicted there. And we're talking easily 20, 30 decibel ranges and six decibels. Every six decibels is doubling the pressure that's hitting your ear to give you a kind of a comparison. And so in terms of mathematical or levels of magnitude difference, this is huge. 
even though it's only making up a small portion of what we hear, mm -hmm. that portion is drastically different from one of us to the next. The other thing that was kind of interesting, though, to me is that if you look at the graph as a whole, you can also end up seeing that there are certain areas that the human skull in general seems to end up endorsing or rejecting. And so there's certain points in there, certain frequencies where we seem to end up boosting or amplifying the sound coming from conduction through the skull and other places where we seem to get more kind of valleys and uh, picking up on that information. And that's across this wide set of listeners that was drastically different. Jeremy, you want to add to that at all? Uh, no, I think that was a, a wonderful explanation. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm curious. So um, with your um, with the varying amounts of men and women, uh, were there any ano anomalies? Did you find any differences in um, men's skulls versus women's skulls? Or is it the size of the skull that makes a difference? Yeah, I'm relying on memory here at the moment without going back to my looking at individual data in front of me. But my memory for this is that Mike, our co-author, actually looked for those differences and they weren't systematic. But we did have anomalies. And so in the paper, there's actually one depiction there of several listeners to kind of highlight just how drastically different some of these listeners were. And I would characterize at least one or two of those individual listeners as being very unusual. And so we were just trying to highlight the level of individual difference. Uh, so ultimately, I wouldn't attribute it to the, being man or woman. You know, the one thing I would end up saying that's going to change is the average size of the skull itself could change. And that could impact any resonant properties that the skull itself might have. But in terms of how it comes up across the spectrum and what's being emphasized or de-emphasized, no unified pattern was coming from it. Oh, okay. I see. Understood. And uh, what are the implications of the findings as they relate to perception? Could you go a little bit into that for us? Yeah, so the big thing in connection to the threshold data was that essentially what we were observing in terms of what was measured going in and coming out, that that pattern was predictive of the nature of the bone conduction thresholds, but not the air conduction thresholds. And this makes sense, given the nature of what it is we're measuring in the first place, and given that it's a relatively small part of the bigger picture of how the person's ultimately going to perceive things. What we were interested in launching to at the time that became like kind of a whole second study that we initially looked at and that we are now just starting to revisit is trying to actually use the pattern of data that we got to be able to generate a series of filtered productions of sound for people to listen to and see are there differences in listening preferences for complex things like an excerpt of a piece of music. And we found some very broad trends to suggest that if we just played them just the bone conducted version and ignored everything else, that's really not fair because that's exaggerating the contribution of that part. There were some general trends towards people actually preferring the sound of things that were not like the things that would come through their own skull. Think of it, your skull's already maybe emphasizing certain frequencies. We don't need to end up like then boosting that more and give it to them for listening purposes, right? 
And so we've actually been talking recently about how we could end up doing that in a more kind of full-fledged fair test. And we're expecting to do that soon. We actually have some software to essentially do third octave band filtering of the signal to mix with the original and be able to end up testing this out. So I hope to end up having a like a more complete perceptual answer for you very soon in terms of what this is good for in terms of our own individual listening. But for now, we know at least it predicts one of the sets of thresholds that Jeremy was describing. All right. And um, you kind of uh, delved into my next question. As for ongoing steps, is that the the only uh, area that you're taking the research in? Or is are there any um, other upcoming or ongoing next steps for the research that you'd like to share or that you can share with our listeners? Yeah. So in, in talking to Mike, what our first step is going to be is to essentially generate a series of filtered recordings based on the data set that we have, to end up having a set of examples of what it would sound like conducted through those types of skulls to play back to people so they could hear what the end product would really be like and then have them judge those things relative to each other to tell us whether perceptually this is something we have to really be concerned about. We're talking typically in bone-conducted signals through the skull I think it's somewhere in the order of like 5 to 10% of what we ultimately get is coming from that, which is a relatively small contribution. But if these differences are so drastic, then it's possible that that could still have perceptual meaning to us, right? And if so, the implications of that are huge. Then I would think that the next step, if that comes out supporting what we think could be happening, then the next step would be to think in terms of like all the real world applications where this could end up having some impact. You know, you start to think about like, should we individually differentiate our listening devices to be able to end up handling what's coming from our own skull? But that won't be necessary unless we can demonstrate very clearly that that's going to make a, a meaningful perceptual contribution. I see. I'm, I'm I'm so interested to see if that that would be something if we would all have individual, you know, as you said, auditory devices based on, you know, um, how our skulls are interpreting sound. So that I'm so curious um, in the long term to see if that pans out. <laughs> and now, lastly, are there any closing details you would like to share? Anything else that you'd want um, the listeners to know about the research? I'm giving Jeremy first crack on this one. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I can add like a context thing here to kind of kind of uh, segues in uh, with what Michael was talking about is so. So when you think about it is um, sort of the, the analog uh, that would be obvious to folks is, uh, you know, what your voice sounds like uh, when, when you hear it over the phone versus what it, you sound like to yourself. Right. Uh, or not now in the world of, uh, you know, virtual uh, teleconferencing. Right. We can. Uh, get a better idea of that. Um, so, uh, and basically the reason that you hear those differences between what you hear yourself as and someone else does is these bone conduction pathways. So they clearly change uh, the quality of the timbre of the, of the sounds that we hear. Um, 
So in something like audio communications, um, you know, the, the perceptual system is pretty resistant to these changes. And if you're talking about issues of intelligibility, you know, you're, you're probably going to be okay. But I think uh, what Michael was uh, really uh, alluding to is that when you get into things like preferences for stuff like music, right, those uh, changes in the quality of sound are, are, can be uh, potentially huge in terms of, uh, you know, uh, personal preference or personal enjoyment of uh, those types of sounds. Um, so just to add sort of the context there for uh, listeners, maybe to have that in their mind, the analog of uh, what what really that uh, bo those bone conduction pathways are adding into uh, your uh, audio auditory experience of the world. And I would just add to that that traditionally, I would think that acoustic research and auditory research has done a very good job of paying attention to individual differences when it comes to something like a clinical focus. If we're trying to establish that uh, somebody has a deficit in hearing or some impact of, of an adverse event uh, that they need to end up dealing with, then we've been very good at quantifying that kind of stuff. But we haven't really paid attention to the impact of individual differences on kind of everyday listening activities. So I think that this at least opens the doorway to that kind of possibility we don't know exactly what the answer is yet, right? This is a preliminary step, but if we continue down this road, we might get to get a full answer as to like whether people should be thinking about individual differences as it applies to all aspects of listening. And again, as I said before, a very interesting, um, definitely looking forward to uh, hearing more on that. Um, so I'd like to thank you both for joining us on the podcast. It was a pleasure speaking with both of you, uh, meeting you, and also learning more about your research. Well, thanks for having us. It's been a real pleasure. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Across Acoustics. If you would like to hear more interviews from our authors about their research, please subscribe and find us on your preferred podcast platform.